0: We will uh, open in prayer, and then we'll dig into this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, you are good, and you are worthy of receiving all praise and honor and worship, and Lord, we praise you for big things like sending your son, Jesus, to die for sinners like us for redemption, for adoption, for sanctification that's often painful. And Lord, we could also thank you for smaller things, maybe smaller just in our mind, but things like finances and how to best honor you with them, with possessions that we may have or may desire to have. Lord, for giving us the opportunity to live a life to glorify you, to have purpose in life that as we look around in our world, increasingly people are giving evidence that they do not have a purpose to what they're doing that has lasting impact. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to glorify you, brothers and sisters, even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in, in Matthew 6 today, but just by way of introduction, um, Luke chapter 3 is going to kind of orient our thinking To the text that I'll be preaching from, so in Luke chapter three, John the Baptist is uh, preaching a baptism and preaching about the baptism baptism of repentance. And uh, John the Baptist is pretty fierce, and his words on repentance are strong. And uh, Israel hasn't had a word from God in four hundred years; they haven't had a mouthpiece from God, and. And so much of Israel, it's, it's what does God want from us? What does God desire? Where is the prophet? And they haven't had that. If you know some from Israel's history, you can look at the, the time of the Maccabees or even the time before that. And you can look at what's going on in, in other secular powers at that time and know things were really bad in Israel for most of those 400 years. So here's this voice from God and, and people are coming in droves to the Jordan to hear him preach. And he looks unique. And he speaks in a unique way and he keeps saying this, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And three different groups come up to him and they say, okay, so what is this? How can we bear fruit in keeping with repentance? What does that look like for us? And uh, the first group, the crowds, and he says, he gives three different answers to these groups that come up to him. And the first group is the crowds and he says to them, hey, hey crowds, you want to know how to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? You need to share food and clothing with the poor. Then the second group is a group of tax collectors. And he says, hey, tax collectors, don't cheat people when you're getting money from them. Do what's right with the finances that you've been entrusted with. And the third group are soldiers. He says, hey, soldiers, be content with your pay and don't extort money from other groups of people. So none of these three people asked, hey, uh, hey, what should I do with my finances, John the Baptist? They were all saying, hey, what's this bearing fruit, keeping with repentance? And every single one of them, he gave an answer that was connected with money. And why is that? Well, it's because what we do with our money and possessions is a direct path to our heart. Nearly 15% of Jesus' recorded words are connected to money and possessions, and that's more than heaven or hell combined, in the New Testament. It's a pretty big deal. Now, uh, as we get into this text, we need to be clear about some things. One, being destitute um, is not necessarily a virtue and being wealthy is not a sin. We'll talk about that in some more detail. But what I want us to all think about right now, every single one of us in here, you might be a fourth grader and you might be thinking, I don't have any money anyway. You have some stuff You have some possessions. You might be older and you might think, I have what I have and this is all I'm going to have and I'm on limited income now. Or you might be anywhere in between. But what do we value? What rules our life? And as we're going to see in our study today, do not, do not, do not think in this, oh, what does that person do? Or what does that person do? Or I've got this relative who does this. Or man, my neighbor, if only they... That is absolutely not the purpose of this passage. This passage is saying it's all about you, your stuff, and almighty God. So let's think that way as we go through it. We're going to see that possessions do not last long. That possessions can captivate my heart. That possessions can corrupt me. And that possessions can truly shove God away. So we will, we will start in Matthew chapter 6. And we'll read verse 19 again. Possessions do not last long. It says, "Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal." Well, this this idea of laying up, if you in the original languages, if you look at it, it says basically, uh, "Do not treasure up for yourselves treasures," or you could also translate it, "Do not lay up for yourselves things that are lay So it's it's the same. It's basically the same Greek word that is used there. So it's saying, don't lay up stuff. And that idea of treasure, we need to define that. That's that's stuff that can kind of stack up. Most of your translations say lay up, but it's stuff that can stack up. And so that would be, you could stack up piles of money. You could stack up bolts of cloth. You could stack up piles of tools or grain or whatever. This is stuff that you can hold on to. And it says, um, what are we supposed to do with it? So it's not just money. It's broadly anything that we value or put value upon. Now, specifically, we're looking at money, possessions, stuff, can be any of those things. But it can also include, and it often isn't, but uh, it can also include um, words. It can include feelings. It can include rights. It can include my expectations on other people, what they think of me, what they do for me, what they give back to me. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Many a preacher has been ruined by his congregation. So it's not; They're not trying to do anything wrong. But many a preacher has been ruined by his congregation almost unconsciously. He's been controlled by the desire to have his people's good opinion and praise. And the moment that happens, a man is laying up treasure on earth. So, so think about that for ourselves a little bit. What things are we treasuring? What things are we stacking up? What things are we putting together? Think about what we value. Think about what we cannot live without. Think about what captivates us. Think about our checkbook. Think about a calendar that you might have on your phone or you might have on a wall. What do you do with your time? Think about what you do with the talents and abilities that God has given you. What does my day look like? That's the bank account that I'm putting my treasures into. So the question is, why are we not to treasure is it because earthly things are inherently evil? Uh, Dave Owen preached last Sunday night and he shared, hey, this idea of Gnosticism where they were saying in the first, second, third century, hey, stuff is bad because it's here on earth. And so we want to do everything just at a spiritual level. Everything physical is wrong. Is that, is that accurate? No, that's not what it's saying. He's not saying, hey, it's bad because it's of this earth. He's saying, don't treasure it up because it will not last and he uses this, these three pictures. He says, "Where moth and rust and thieves. That even moth, you know, wrecking clothing. And moths don't actually wreck your clothing. They lay eggs in your clothing. And then the little teeny larvae that go up, there are the ones that pop holes in your clothing. So think about that. Next time you have a moth eating anything, it's actually their little larvae that are wandering around in there. Then it has the idea of, of rust, or, or it, some translate the worm or some, it's actually the idea of, of gnawing. And this could be, You know, whether it's carpentry tools, farm tools, uh, weapons for war, it could be a a stockpile of grain, whatever it might be at the first century, stuff can rust and fall apart. Especially in a, a rainy context like we have here in Kentucky, not as much in a dry context in the ancient Near East. And then the idea of thieves. There's a lot about thieves in Scripture. You've got typically kind of a mud brick house where you could tunnel right through a wall they could get right to your stuff. The idea of thieves is always fresh in our minds too. Where I live in uh, Ohio County, we kind of regularly get little, little updates on who's stolen what. And it'll be, you know, I think a few days ago it was a 40-foot motorhome. But you think, where does one hide the 40-foot motorhome that they steal? I, I don't know, but stuff's disappearing all the time. So this is not something that's just for the, the first century. This is here and now. And we all know that this is true. These things can get us as well today. And other things as well. Stock markets can crash and housing bubbles can burst. Identity theft happens and natural disasters destroy. And that's here and now. And if you haven't had significant loss of something, I'm sure that you know those who have. And it could be coming for you as well. The stuff that we hold in our hands is not something we can say, I know I will always have here on this earth. And certainly not for eternity. If we could think of it this way. If you, if you lived in Norway in 1943, beginning of 1944. And uh, Norway was uh, controlled by Germany at that time. And the Norwegians used uh, a, a monetary thing called the krone. And the krone was made of somewhat valuable metal. And when the Germans came in, they said, Hey, we're gonna, you've got a new krone and it's made out of iron. Uh, it's attractive and heavy. And, uh, and we'll pay put our own stamp on it. And so you can use your, you're in Norway, you're a Norwegian, and you're using this, this little crone, it's made of iron now. It doesn't feel the same, doesn't look the same as the money you used to have. The tide starts to turn. We're 1944. The Germans, it's, things are not looking good for them anymore. Hooray, hooray. Have I been stacking up my iron crone? I've got a huge pile of iron crone. Look at the size of this thing. You would, you would not be doing that. You would be saying, these iron crone are going to be worthless when the Germans are gone. And it looks like they're going to be gone. Now, today, now, when I'm going to go buy bread, I need this iron crone. But I might not have, it, have need of it in a month or in six weeks or in a year. So I'm just going to use what I need. I'm going to bless people with it. I might buy somebody else bread. I might care for others. I'm going to feed my family. Absolutely but I'm not going to stockpile it because it's going to be worthless down the road. And that's really what Jesus is teaching right here. If we are just living for what we have in the here and now, and we're stockpiling up, it's a huge pile of iron crone that is going to be worthless down the road. And he wants us to think that way. He wants us to think like Psalm 49 that says, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies... He will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Nursing homes are filled with very wealthy and very poor. And regardless of being very wealthy or very poor, they're lying in a bed or they're in a wheelchair. They're all getting the same pretty bland food. They're all having somebody else bathe them. And they're not going to live for forever in that nursing home. Wealthy or poor, we're not taking it with us. Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, that I'd encourage anybody and everybody to read. I think it is a terrific book as far as our thinking on God, money, giving. Um, has this quote, he says, You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And that kind of pushes us then to, well, what are these earthly treasures? Uh, The very next verse is going to talk about these earthly treasures. And it says, so rather than earthly treasures, what are these heavenly treasures? It says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So how do I lay them up and what are these heavenly treasures? Well, we we have to think about eternal reward, about reward that does not happen just or or here on earth, but happens in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 is one of those verses where you say, it's giving us this snapshot that's the size of of a dime, and the full understanding of it is the size of this building. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says this, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What does that look like? I, I can't say. We have a dime-sized bit of information. But God has prepared something that's bigger and different than anything we can even comprehend. Reward in heaven. Another one would be heaven itself, where we could talk about the new heavens, and eventually the new heavens and new earth. We chiefly get to be there with our Savior Psalm 16 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not for a short time. Not for a little window. Not, "Ah, it'll be good. It'll be fine. You'll like it. But pleasures forevermore. More than we can comprehend or think. And then we have Jesus, the ultimate treasure. If you want to turn with me or just listen as I read to Philippians 3, um, we have this idea of Jesus as our ultimate treasure. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is talking and he's been saying, hey, I had, historically, I was doing this. I had this kind of background. I had all the education. I had the lineage. I had the the blessing from God. I had all this going for me. But in verse 7 of Philippians 3, he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, rubbish. I count them as trash in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see what he's saying right there? He's saying almighty God has worked Wonderfully on my behalf in history. Look at, I'm, Paul saying, I would, I'm Jewish. I've been given all these wonderful, helpful things. But it's not the answer. God has an impossibly high standard. God has expectations on my life. And as a human being, I think we can all agree with this. Certainly, Paul would echo this in multiple places in his writing. He would say, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short. I have sinned and I've sinned and I've sinned. And we could all agree with that. And, 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 and what is the answer? Well, Almighty God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. And it says, I can not have my own righteousness, but I can have what some have called this, this alien righteousness. I can have the, the great exchange. I can have another's righteousness, as Pastor Keith said in his prayer, imputed onto me, put on top of me. Not just a little righteousness thrown my way, as some teach, but fully placed upon me and my sin placed fully upon Him. And I can be found, as it says in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Righteousness from God that depends on faith. And what is our response? Do I take this of my own? Do I trust in him? Do I repent and turn and trust in him as my savior? Saying, I need your righteousness, take my sin upon you. It's a question we have to ask ourselves today. Can this treasure be mine? Oh, absolutely. Will you trust as Paul has done in the righteousness of Christ, in the work of Christ, taking sin upon himself? So so those are maybe some of the treasures. How do I I lay them up? I think that question needs to be asked. How do I I get this type of treasure? Well, certainly we could look at things like, like godly character. I think we can think of things like who we have shared the gospel with, who we have discipled, who we have reached out to and cared for. You think of those in the nursery right now taking care of children. You think of people teaching a Sunday school class for kids or, the, or a kids, kids program or kids study or something like that. You can think of reaching out at the nursing home. You can think of all the things that we might do as a church body in reaching out. Absolutely, those things are things that have eternal value. You could think of... Truth spoken to people as you represent God accurately. You know, it talks about uh, in the Psalms, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. As we represent Almighty God, we are speaking truth to people. These are treasures that can be laid up in heaven. We can think of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. We could go on. These are all ways to lay up treasure in heaven. And and then Matthew 6 kind of gives us a little bit of a picture as well. It says, here are some some good things to do. These are terrific things to do. But if you do them with the wrong motives, you're not laying up treasure in heaven. You're just doing some stuff. So so that needs to be thought of too. So it's not just, I hear some things I want to do for God, which that is an honorable good thing to do. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 talks about we are his workmanship, created under him to do good works. That is good to do as believers. It's a way to worship. But if we are doing them as to be seen by others, it's a broken thing. And so um, in Matthew chapter 6, it says, uh, in verse 2, it says, uh, when you give to the needy, don't make a big deal about it. So if you want this to be a treasure laid up in heaven, You're going to give, but don't make it all about you, the giver. Make it all about him. So in giving, uh, verse five talks about another way. Hey, when you pray, when you pray, don't make a big show about it. Look how long I can pray or look how great I can pray or boy, I'm so articulate. And, And none of those things are wrong. But am I making a show about myself when I pray? Or am I making it all about the one I am praying to? Laying up treasure in heaven. How about in in verse 16? When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say they have received their reward. He says, when you fast, don't make it about you. Make it about the one that you are seeking to commune with in your fasting. Just some examples. So so that is basically the idea of possessions not lasting long. And we can see there and there, it would really be... Our personal possessions, earthly possessions, do not last long. Truly, the possession of Christ lasts for eternity. Secondly, we're going to see that possessions can captivate my heart. It says in verse twenty-one: "For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." I have a few. Th- I have. I have four thoughts, kind of. Help our thinking, or help the context of this a little bit for us. Um, so I have kind of four statements that I'd like to make. Connect to that. One, um, the Old Testament focus. I want us to think about that as compared to the New Testament focus. So that's not to say, oh, this this division of of old and new. You know, they're. they're Completely, you know, they're completely dissimilar or they're butting heads with each other. But think about that a little bit. How is blessing typically connected in the Old Testament? It's often wealth, stability, children, lack of war, lack of hard things interacting with your life. We read a lot of that. You know, think, think Abram in, in Scripture. Think David. Think, think others. And blessing is often connected to those things. I'm not saying that's never connected in the New Testament, but the New Testament has much more of a feel of personal sacrifice, uh, has a feel of we need to be wary of great abundance. Will it pull our heart away? A warning against pursuing wealth, warning against seeking earthly comfort, (laughs) something that we all do. Um, So Old Testament focus versus New Testament focus. Secondly, uh, 90% of Americans are rich by New Testament standards. Um, I heard a sermon a a few months back and a pastor was probably somewhat annoyed at his congregation at that time. And he kept saying, you know, you Americans are so rich or you Americans are doing this. And I was thinking, well, I think he's an American too, actually. But um, if you've ever traveled outside of the country, you have seen that we have opulence in our country. Now it's expensive to live here as well. Um, I have friends and, and you might as well in other countries and they assume because you live in America, you're super rich. So can, uh, can you send more money? Can you send more money? Can you send more money? And, and often we, we do or we try to do different things. We're actually doing a short study with the teens right now on poverty and what, how God sees it and what are some healthy ways to alleviate and work with poverty. Knowing that, that Jesus himself says, hey, the poor you always have with you But yet, what are the wealth of verses that say, hey, we need to care for those that are hurting? So we're trying to give them some context on that. But 90% of Americans are rich or very rich by world standards, certainly by New Testament standards. Uh, Three, most humans are tempted to be captivated. If possessions can captivate my heart, most of us are tempted to be captivated. And maybe you are not. But if you're not now, you might be at a later time. And we need to think about that. If you are connected with people in a third world country, I know the first time that I traveled to a third world country and I got some friends there, got to know them a little bit and I was shocked because I thought, well, this materialism that we fight in the United States is going to be so connected to here. And some people that that I was interacting with, they did not have very much, but their stuff was really, really, really important to them. Too important, frankly. And we can do the very same thing. It's not the wealthy are tempted to be captivated or the poor are tempted to be captivated. All humans are tempted to be captivated. All must fight. Fourthly, the focus must be on me and not the other guy. And I know I referenced that earlier, but the question who held the money bags for the disciples and Jesus? And we know it was Judas. Judas. So if 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 we as a church were in charge, we said, hey, let's find somebody to be in charge of the finances at our church. We wouldn't look for Judas. We wouldn't give Judas a money bag and say, hey, do your thing. But there's no, there's nothing in scripture that says that he was ever stopped and he was cheating with the money. Judas was stealing the money. And did Jesus know? Absolutely. Did he do anything to stop it? There's no record of it. Does that mean we should just do things willy nilly with the finances of a church? It doesn't. But it does tell us something, that there should be a real focus on me personally with finances and that God is not limited by somebody else's sin with finances or this person's decision here or there. He allowed Judas to be in charge of the finances. Which reminds us, I need to personally look at my own face in my own mirror and say, how am I pleasing Almighty God? And I do not need to be spending time quibbling over what somebody else may or may not be doing. I need to say, what does God desire for me. And what it does is it shows um, these possessions and what we do with them shows where our heart truly is. I have this quote from John Stott that I think is terrific. And the quote is this, beware of materialism that tethers your heart to the earth. Isn't that great? You picture a leash and it's holding me down to the earth. Materialism, beware of materialism that tethers your heart to to the earth holding me down right here when I should be focused on my savior so possessions can truly captivate my heart possessions also can truly corrupt me and we'll move pretty quickly through these last two these are these are kind of really 22 and 23 and then verse 24 really two illustrations to help us understand what he has talked about in the previous few verses and it says in verse 22 and 23 about possessions corrupting me talks about the eye and he says this Says the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So it's kind of a confusing. Those are a confusing couple of verses. You can read them over a few other times this afternoon. But the eye basically is this: if you can see. You can bring light in and you can have understanding. I can see a group of people. I can see a room. I can see light in the parking lot. And it gives me understanding to my whole body. If I'm blind, I can't see any of that. If I can see nothing, I don't have any of these visuals. I don't have any light, as it were. I don't have any understanding of what's going on in here. And he says, if your light is really darkness, you're a mess. He's basically going back to the idea of if you're calling good evil and evil good, how, how rotten is this? How how broken is this? If you say you're serving God, but really you're just serving stuff, you've got a really, really broken situation. Complete disaster. And the, the rich young ruler is really a good illustration of this. So the, the rich young guy, he goes up to Jesus and he says, hey, what do I need to do to have the kingdom? Or what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, hey, have you, have you been following the 10 commandments? Not giving us the rule of, of obeying a bunch of things is gonna get you into heaven, but rather saying, if you were a serious Jewish young man at that time and you said you loved God, well, then you better have an understanding of wanting to do what pleases him. And he is pleased when you go through the commandments in the 10 commandments right there of Jesus saying, hey, have you committed adultery? Have you done this? Have you done this? You are seeking to follow God. And you know the story that the young man says, I, I've done all of that since I was a kid. I've followed that. And Jesus says, hey, I want you to take all you have and sell it. And I want you to give it to the poor and come follow me and you'll have the kingdom. You'll, you'll be with me. Let's go. Let's do this. Now, Jesus knew his heart. He knew what this guy was worshiping. And for you in and of themselves, it might not be that. But whatever we have a tendency of putting our treasure in, Jesus certainly knew his heart and said, here's your problem. You are worshiping this and you are not worshiping me. The young man loved money. And secondly, he wasn't willing to part with it. It was his. Now, now wealth is not the problem. We can think of the, uh, the woman that anointed Jesus' feet. She breaks this alabaster jar, pours it on his feet. It might be a year's worth of wages that that jar would have cost. And Jesus doesn't say to her, hey, you shouldn't be having that in the house. How dare you have fancy oil in your house? You should get the Walmart brand or what. He doesn't say that. There's nothing in there. In fact, the disciples were saying, how dare she do that? Could have sold that and given the money to the poor. We know the story says, hey, she's going to be known forever because of what she has done. She has worshipped or anointed me. So the wealth is not the problem. Uh, We could think of the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. We could think of Joseph of Arimathea, who allowed his burial plot to be used by Jesus. We could think of some of the wealthy women that financially helped Paul in his missionary journeys. Jesus, we could have some of the same as well with his disciples. So wealth wasn't the issue, it is what we are doing with it and how we look at it. We're all familiar with 1 Timothy 6, where it talks about the love of money is a root root of all evil. Not money in itself, but the love of it can corrupt me. And then the second illustration would be that possessions can shove God away. We've seen how they could corrupt me, but they can also shove God away. His second illustration in verse 24, uh, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and will despise the other, You cannot serve God and money. Or sometimes the word mammon is there. And mammon is not just money. It would be all the possessions, all the things, all the material blessings that you may have. And the idea there being if you were under the direction of another and... and potentially if you're a slave and you had an owner over here and you had an owner over here and the owner over here is saying, I want you to go out today and I want you to do this and this and this. And this owner over here is saying, I want you to go out and do this and this and this. And you're saying, I can't be in two places at once. And this one says, I own you, you do what I say. And this one over here says, I own you, do what I say. We know how broken that is. That's impossible, that can't happen. If you've ever been in a job where you had two bosses and they were both telling you, either too much to do so you couldn't get it done or they were telling you competing things and you're thinking, I can't keep you happy, I can't, nobody is happy. This is an unworkable situation and that's what Jesus is saying here. You cannot, you cannot serve God and money. Romans chapter 6, and we won't get into the the passage, but Romans chapter 6 talks about us being slaves of righteousness there's multiple places in scripture it talks about us, being, about us being a bond slave of Christ. We can't be a bond slave of Christ and worship our money as well. And you know, we might think to ourselves, you know, I, I think I'd like to give this a try though. I know some people that are doing really poorly in this, but I think I'm, I might be exceptional or I might have the ability or, or, whatever, or whatever we might say. And I, I have some writing that a friend wrote that I thought was interesting connected to that. You know, Jesus is saying here, you can't do it. You cannot serve money and serve God at the same time. It cannot be done. And we can at times think, well, I'd like to give it a try. So here's what this person wrote, uh, the friend of Natalie and I. He said, many of us believe that Jesus was speaking in generalities here. We know that scripture, we know what scripture says about money, but we think it's only true for most people, not exceptional people like us. It was good of Jesus to give the general advice for the masses, we think. We're among the rare few who can pull it off. Most people can't have treasure on earth and keep their hearts focused on heaven, but we can. Satan knows that we like to think this way, and he likes it too. It's a form of pride, and it opens us up to him. And he goes on to say, remember, God says it's impossible to pursue both. We will either aspire to God and his value system or aspire to the world and its value system heaven culture or earth culture, one or the other. So humble yourself before the Lord. Believe he knows more about these matters than even an exceptional person like you. Submit to his wisdom and his lordship. Determine to seek only him. Possessions truly can shove God away. Or we might, as as we are often tempted to do, if we can think of it this way, We're often tempted to try to create heaven on earth. And I I know I have done this and do this. And I'm sure many, if not all of you have done it or do it as well. And we can say this, I want to live in a world as a Christian where there's not hurt, where there's not pain, where there's not death. We want to live in a world where everything is right now. And some versions of Christianity have sold that as, hey, you can have that right now. Everything will be perfect in your life. You won't have anything bad as long as you don't sin. If you sin, then all bets are off. But if, as long as you don't sin, you will live a perfect life here on earth. You'll have everything you could ever desire or want. And how people get enamored with that when you read the clear cl- teaching of scripture, read of Paul's missionary journeys, when you read of the difficulty and hardship and our Savior himself saying foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And people are going to come around and say, but you can have everything you want and have heaven here on earth. It's impossible, but we do that. And I'm not saying that the pain is something we desire or want. All of us have lost loved ones that the pain can feel unbearable. But that is part of the human existence here on earth. And there is a reason that we are looking to a, for a future and a hope. We are looking to a new heaven and a new earth. That God has not left us alone here as orphans, but he is bringing us as adopted children, those who have trusted in him, bringing them to himself. We are looking to that. But it's not going to happen here. In this world, you will have trouble. And we cannot try to create heaven here on earth, really subverting what god has planned for us we sometimes want everything we desire and if if there's an example of that in scripture we could look at solomon the guy had everything you could humanly ask for and what does he say i tried this i tried this i tried this i tried this and what does he say vanity vanity it's all vanity this pile of crone here on earth it's just iron it's a pile of iron we want treasure that is eternal So that's what it's teaching here, that possessions, mere material possessions, do not last. And that possessions can captivate my heart. And that possessions can corrupt me. Possessions can truly shove God away. So I have two application questions for us to think about before we go. First of all, does God care for his kingdom-seeking children? does God care for his kingdom-seeking children? And does he do it better and care better than we could ever care for ourselves? As believers, we would give that a resounding yes, even though it's fearful at times. I've interacted with some missionaries over the past uh, few years and talked with one from outside of our church a little while back. And everything humanly that they were looking to do on this mission field did not work out. And they sold their stuff and they went back to school and got, he got his MDiv at Southern and they set themselves up and they were kind of middle of life. And so their adult children were kind of on their own and they were going to go to another country and it was a country that was really needy and the gospel needed to go out. And so they're living out of boxes and they're living really, really tight for money and things did not work out. Did they serve God poorly? Nope. Did they seek his face? Absolutely Were they seeking and had been seeking and were looking to seek increasingly treasures in heaven? Yes. And nothing worked out in the way that they thought they could best serve God. So there's some scariness to saying, God, you take care of me in your best way. But there's some comfort in it too. There is complete lasting comfort in saying, God, you have me. We can scroll down in Matthew chapter six where it's, We're told, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And those are good things. Those are right things to have. None of those are wrong. We're not condemning any of that. It says, and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. You need those three things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So does God care for his kingdom-seeking children? Absolutely. Second question, application question. How can I be abundant with my possessions? Uh, We probably have a a second sermon coming on that down the road um, because there's a lot of things that I would like to talk about at at a practical level. And so I would probably do that down the road. But if we could think of this, Luke chapter 12 has the idea of being rich toward God. There's a lot in that statement. There's a lot about what I do with my time, with my possessions, with the idea that I can use what God has given me to being rich toward Almighty God. The idea of a steward with our time and ability and possessions. How about even in giving, church, missions, the poor with the hurting, orphans, widows, foreigners in our midst. We have opportunities to please our Almighty God. And not just do some things to keep a church building running. We can do things with eternal value. Say, God, this is my gift to you. You have abundantly blessed. What an opportunity to live life and have treasure for eternity in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a passage that we all fall short in. This is a passage where we are reminded. And Lord, for the majority of people in this room, they've heard sermons on this, they've studied it on their own, they have thoughts on it. The Lord as as failed, fallen, sinful children of yours, we need the reminder of what am I doing with my time? What am I doing with my possessions? What am I doing that has, that is eternal in value? Lord, let us be a church that makes much of you, that glorifies, that magnifies your name and what we do with our possessions, with our stuff, with our time. In Jesus' name, amen.